Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. This podcast is focused on developing internal and external communication strategies from the 2023 Chief Medical Officer Summit 360. For more information on the CMO Summit, editorials, podcasts, or webcasts, please visit cmo360.org. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Before we start and introduce ourselves, maybe we can just take a moment and figure out who's in the room, because I think that's helpful. How many of you have been involved in the strategic development of a news or a press release? Okay. How many of you have been quoted in a news release? Were you involved in writing your quote? (laughs) Oh, that's actually impressive. Okay, excellent. How many of you have been involved in media relations for good news? That's the best stuff, okay. And for unfortunate news. Okay, so we've got lots of experience here. Um, How many of you have a social media account? And how many of you post to it weekly? Once a week or more? Okay, not surprised. And then uh, two last questions. How many of you have a communications person um, within your organization? And how many of you have a a strategic relationship with that person? Okay, so what do you guys think? Okay, so my name is Carla McDonald. I'm the Chief Corporate Affairs Officer for Entrada Therapeutics. Within my job is Corporate Communications, Investor Relations, and Government Affairs. Over to you, Dan. Hi, everyone. I'm Dan Gold. I'm the President and Owner of Fairway Consulting Group. We're a boutique executive search firm exclusively focused in the biotech industry, and we help build R&D leadership teams. Hi, Steve Keynes. I'm the CEO of Embark Neuro. Um, and I have enormous sympathy for everybody here until about a year ago as the Chief Medical Officer at Sage Therapeutics. Hi, everyone. I'm Austin Chang. Uh, I'm the Chief Medical Officer of the GI business at Medtronic. Um, I'm also still a practicing gastroenterologist as well, and I'm also very active on social media on multiple platforms, whether it's TikTok, uh, Instagram, um, all of the above, LinkedIn, Twitter, et cetera. Um, also uh, on the advisory board for YouTube Health and also on the Healthcare, Leader Social, Healthcare Leaders of Social Media Roundtable for the White House. Terrific, so thank you. So we're gonna start off by talking about the beginning of a communication strategy and how we're involved as a CMO or how are you guys are involved as a CMO. And Steve, maybe I'll, I'll kick it to you to kick us off. Sure, well, I'll just say that for Embark Neuro, we're a brand new company. Um, I think right now you're looking at Embark Neuro, located right here on the stage in in this room. Um, And about a year ago, we needed to start from scratch. It was in-licensed compound, brand new psychiatry drug, new therapeutic area, and so forth. And the way that we went about doing this, and and this is something that I think for those of you in very early stage companies should really be thinking about, is start with the science. Um, We had to think about putting ourselves on the map in terms of investors right off the bat, Uh, We had to develop uh, materials for things like social network or a website. Um, But before any of that really starts to go live, we actually had to think through our scientific platform. What are the things we want to say about ourselves and what ideally would we want to communicate about the scientific story, the patients, and the potential opportunity for the drug. And so first and foremost, before any of it starts, is really thinking through with real clarity what you want to communicate, who you want to communicate to, and how best to, to, to move that through multiple channels. 
And I think that's a good point, because if we think about the conversation we had just preceding this about financing, we talked a little bit about the S1, and we all find those near and dear to our hearts. And the S1 is really the genesis of the way we are going to articulate our corporate strategy. And if you've been through an IPO, you know that the language that you first uh, introduce within your S1 really actually becomes a lot of the language that you pull forward, um, not just for the IPO, but as you start to create content and start to tell your story with investors. And so one of the, the things that's really, really important from the beginning is you really need to think of your communication strategy as a strategic imperative rather than a task that's on your to-do list. It's how are you cultivating your story that's gonna meet the needs of your various audiences, which could range from obviously investors to physicians to patients. So Austin, maybe we could talk a little bit about, so we've talked a little bit about in the past panel about developing an S1 and with Steve now, the importance of getting your story right before you go into financing. Could you maybe talk to us a little bit about the tools available and how they might leverage content? Yeah, I think it really depends on who you're trying to reach. I mean, I, as an individual sort of creator on social media, as a CMO kind of putting myself out there, this sort of all preceded my, my role. Um, but I sort of have boiled it down to three things. It's usually kind of what I'm proficient at, who I'm trying to talk to, and what my purpose is in talking to them. Um, and that determines sort of which platform is most suitable and where to start. Uh, I have the benefit of kind of having explored for many years before entering this role, and so I've developed a way to speak to different audiences. Um, you know, on Twitter, it's mainly physicians and other kind of professional colleagues and trainees. Uh, on LinkedIn, sometimes it might be more sort of broadly investors and other kind of colleagues, and even for kind of recruitment purposes, if we're looking for talent. Um, or even internal, you know, we're talking about internal and external strategies here. So, you know, if there's a kind of developing a, a better sense of the culture at Medtronic, kind of how I represent that and, um, you know, uh, that sort of thing. So it really um, depends on which, uh, which audience I'm trying to speak to. And of course, each of these platforms have different features, whether it's kind of predominantly text-based or video-based. Um, it really, you have to develop a, a different strategy depending on what sort of functionality it has. And, um, and you know, depending on the audience, they may respond differently to that kind of delivery, whether it is uh, more uh, a written type of piece or if it's a video-based kind of um, content. Okay, so that's really helpful, but we're not going to let Austin off the hook yet <laughs> because we all know we work in a highly regulated industry. Um, and the regulations, particularly around communications and claims, go up as we move into a later development cycle, so clinical trials, then market commercialization. So Austin, I have looked at your social media, and you have a tremendous amount of following. So tell me about Medtronic and, and their reaction to your social media um, prevalence, if you will, and have you spent a lot of time talking to corporate compliance? Uh, a couple times. Um, I, you know, the minute I stepped foot in the door, that was uh, kind of one of the first meetings that I had, and they vetted kind of my social media presence ahead of time as well. That was part of the, the process. But, um, but yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I've always been kind of very mindful about how I approach this. I think even before I joined Medtronic, it was all about making sure that there's a lot of transparency, that the information I was putting out there was um, accurate. And so stepping foot into Medtronic, I also wanted to make sure that I wasn't breaking any rules. And so, um, 
you know, I've changed my, my approach to social media and some of the content that I'm putting out there, the subject matter has also changed. So in the past, I used to talk about whatever devices and technologies I wanted to, and now there are more guardrails and I can't do that quite as much. And I'm very aware of the fact that even if I were to speak about Medtronic's own products, that there, uh, you know, that if there were complaints in, kind of um, in, in the comment section, that has to be treated a certain way. And so I've shifted my approach to really just talking more about my role, talking about um, the disease states in general to kind of, um, you know, still be able to speak to this, but without, yeah, just sort of in a more indirect way. Perfect. And we'll talk a little bit more because authentic communication is really cornerstone to successful communication. And as each of you are embarking on your own communication strategies, we'll talk about making sure we get to that. Now, Steve, you've started your next company. You've got your sort of your business case um, in development. You're clearly out of stealth in that you told us yep. the name of your company. So what are the communications materials that you have first started to generate? And do you think you generated the right ones? And, and what's that beginning point for you? Well, yeah, so the beginning point really was our core scientific platform, as I said. And this is, and based on, on my experience, having said a lot of things in a lot of settings as a chief medical officer 10 years ago, um, which then had to get backfilled in terms of backup um, and all of the fact checking that you need later. So you're, uh, you're one of those. Uh, <laughs> so yes, I can just tell you that if you do it the right way, uh, you already have your references and all the facts that you're going to use in every platform. You're talking about the S1. I'm years from even contemplating an S1, but the same facts that we use for communicating with the FDA that I'm using with our scientific advisory board, depending on the level, uh, that we're using on our website, all of those facts are exactly the same. They're just couched in different ways. And we think of this as sort of a sandwich so that the material that we use is never gonna look inconsistent regardless of where we go. And that is absolutely critical. So why I started in this case with a scientific platform so that we can always make sure that if it's a consultant contractor who's doing investor relations for us, he can go back to that um, material and make sure that it tracks back. If we're working with a website developer, they know that we've already fact-checked the things we're gonna use and we can send that to our consulting attorney who reviews all the materials. And so having that as a starting point, uh, it's a bit painful uh, to get rolling, but it really makes it a lot easier to communicate going forward. And you know, even in the background today, people are making use of that material. And you know, every once in a while, you'll need to refresh it, but we haven't been that far along. So starting there is absolutely critical. I love it. And I like making sure you have the data supporting points up early so that you stay true to your story. And as you all know, ben, um, building leadership credibility is absolutely fundamental to a successful fundraise IPO or interactions with patients, FDA, and other stakeholders. So Daniel's sitting here thinking, okay, she's forgotten about me. So don't worry. So, so when, when we talk about doing communications, and particularly in this, what, uh, biotech attrition, it's about 10% a year, 20%, it's gone up and down. We know it's really hard to attract and retain attract and retain extremely good 
colleagues, in fact, even mediocre ones. So how do communications um, support- I don't specialize in the mediocre Well, I know one. you I don't, don't clearly, because look at this very <laughs> prestigious group you're hanging out with today. But how do communications work to support the work you have to do, and what are some lessons learned as we think of our potential and future employees as an important stakeholder? Yeah, I mean, I think the dialogue with an investor is a very similar dialogue to the dialogue with a candidate. Right, they're doing due diligence on you. They're they're cross-checking, they're back-checking, they're look, they're poking all the holes. Except making a job change is one of the three most emotional decisions you'll make in your life. And most candidates, most people, make them three to five times in their life. Investors are making these decisions every day. They're much more savvy. They're much less emotional. So having to think about how to approach a top talent who has his or her head down and is not scanning the market thinking about companies and educating them in a certain way, in a compelling way, uh, in a genuine way about the opportunities and the hurdles of the company are really important. So it starts with that, you know, that baseline. What are we gonna go to market, to that candidate market, telling those candidates about our company? We're a single asset company, we're a risky company, we have a year of cash left. Why is someone gonna leave the comforts of their current company and make and cross that really risky perceived threshold. And it's it's nailing those points up front and making sure that the first first the first person that talks to that candidate, that message is consistent all the way through to human resources, CMO, CEO, potentially even board. And I, I agree, we hear that all the time during the interviewing process. Um, the value of the consistency of the message and the priorities as they go through the candidate chain. We also see that uh, candidates are increasingly kind of stalking our LinkedIn profiles and our corporate feed to get a better inside look at the culture of the company. So maybe Daniel, you can quickly kind of comment on that and then I'm gonna go back to you, Austin. Yeah, LinkedIn is a very powerful tool. Uh, and it could be powerful in an attraction way or in a deterrent way. And you're, you know, everything you put on there is gonna be interpreted. And it's a real strong marketing tool. So build it up and don't just like something, but, but comment, you know, in a way that's compelling and stirring up a conversation and, and, and the range of interest and topics that you can comment the range of candidates you're gonna to speak to, whether it's scientifically commenting on a clinical development program, patients, corporate culture, leadership, you wanna tick as many of those boxes as you can so you're resonating with the widest, widest audience you can. Great, Austin? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think social media has to be social. So, you know, it's not just a matter of putting things on the internet, it's also engaging with one another. And um, my approach is always trying, trying to be as authentic as possible. And that also means not posting for the sake of posting something, but really when I feel like I genuinely have something to say, and I think that really resonates. Great, thank you. So one of the things we talk about in communications, I often say there's big C communications and little c communications. And for me, big C communications are those corporate communications, corporate wide. That's your internet when your CEO or your senior leader are up on stage talking. 
it's your social media, it's um, your internal platforms, it's your key messaging, your investor decks. Those are the kind of the corporate branded talk. And then there's something that I like to call little c communications, which is the communications each of you do every single day. Just because you're a leader, you're a people manager, and you have a responsibility, not just to your teams, but also some of our external stakeholders. And often we'll see that internally, perhaps through emails or town halls. Externally, we'll see it through conference participation and social media. So I'm going to take a minute and talk about big C communications. And I'm going to go back to you, Steve. What are some of the ways that the CMO is involved in big C communications? Yeah. Besides uh, being uh, keeping the, the CEO under wraps, um, and avoiding otherwise aspirational statements in public that would otherwise be unwise. Um, it's really being the authentic communicator. Uh, you know, right before this, there was a session with um, investors and talking about S1s and so forth. The number of times in which even uh, what I would consider hard-nosed analysts have turned to me when I was a CMO and fact-checked the CEO in real time, I can't even count it. Steve, was that right? Yeah, that was <laughs> because otherwise I'll be kicking him under the table. So it, 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 but, but really being the authentic communicator in terms of science, in terms of the patience, in terms of the mechanism of action uh, alongside a CSO if you have one, um, being the container of that kind of factual information and being on the side of the patients is absolutely critical. And it's different from the bigger view of corporate strategy and the ways in which you'd use capital. Perfect, and this is a warning to the audience. We're at about two minutes away from opening the mic. So if you have a question, you want to start moving your way to the mic, now's a good time. Um, so the CMO obviously has the medical background, um, is often looked to as the person who understands the patient voice a little more closely. Um, are you in the, the, formula the strategy development, document formulation, editing? Wh where do you see that person spending, the CMO person spending most of their time? FS to me, it's all, all, all of the above, all of the above. I mean, it's sort of fit. So by the time we were a public company, we were a public company for a long time, about 50% mm, or more was spent really thinking about not just running the R&D organization, but how to communicate it to stakeholders at every level. That was a large part of the work, especially for on the investor side, uh, both new investors as well as existing investors. So uh, it starts with understanding the science and then it goes towards all those other places of communication. Okay, thank you. And Daniel, for you, when you are looking at candidates to bring into organizations, talk to me about um, your understanding of their influence on the big C communications and whether or not you view that as important. And then talk to me about some of the little C communications, which is that own brand building that they're doing individually. I think it really is highly dependent on the role. I mean, the CMO organization is clinical operations, clinical development, medical affairs, drug safety, pharmacovigilance, and sometimes regulatory. They each want to have a different role in the big C and little C. So really understanding each individual audience and what their wants, needs, and desires are is is critical to seeing how they might impact that big C and little C. I mean, I think a regulatory person, you know, by nature might not want to impact the big C, but they can they can change the entire dynamic of that big C by how they interact with the regulatory authorities, their posture in that situation, how they interact and integrate into the other parts of the R&D organization. So th there's so many nuances based on the function that I think it's really important to think about each individual player. Perfect, and then before I go to the audience and look at that huge lineup at Mike too, <laughs> um, I'm gonna go to you, Austin. 
Talk to me about internal and external communication. So historically, we used to think there was this big wall, a nice high wall. I could say whatever I wanted internally, and it would stay internally. And then I'd say what I wanted externally, but only some people would hear. Is that still the case? I think it depends on the platform and also kind of your uh, how I go about messaging and who the intended audience is. So I think there's definitely some external communication that can still be relevant internally. Um, I mean, even for colorectal cancer awareness month, which was last month, um, the month of March, there was a lot of kind of, in some ways, internal messaging about that too, because the health of our workforce is, you know, the health of the company as well. Um, so I think in some ways it overlaps. Um, but I would also say, kind of just to, to take a, a page out of the last question about big C communication as well, I think one of the roles um, that, uh, one of the goals that I have is kind of being in this role is also thinking about the next generation of physicians and also the potential roles that they have in industry and kind of fostering innovation there. And so it's not kind of a, not just external um, with regards to customers and, and patients, but also kind of, you know, my potential successor in some ways, <laughs> so that as well. And I would, I would add to that in terms of recruiting candidates, there really shouldn't be a wall because you want to be your true self, your true culture, you want to share your challenges and your opportunities of your company. The more the candidate knows about those distinctions, the better prepared they're going to be to be successful at the company and vice versa. You should know about their their tics, their interests, their their deficiencies, their personality flaws so that when they engage in a in a life-changing decision to join your company, you know what you're getting in the process and I, you know, great candidates and great can and great employers do this. They're very comfortable being vulnerable, and you should be leery if if everyone if you're just painting a very rosy picture on the client on the employer side and the employee side because that's never ever ever the case. I, I agree, and that goes back to authentically communicating. So we're going to put a, a, a pin in authentically communicating in a very authentic way because we have a question. Have so. A question. So my question was for Austin, and that was, you know, as CMOs, we think a lot about risk-benefit analysis and about getting the dose right. And I was wondering if you ever have regretted the level of exposure that you have. Oh, great question. <laughs> um, I think I've had my moments. I think that in some ways I owe my social media visibility to being able to land this role in some ways, so I can't knock it entirely. Um, but, you know, there have been some tough moments, you know, where I've come under fire for something that I've posted or expressed an opinion. And, and I think uh, my voice on social media has also evolved over time, and especially after I took on this role at Medtronic. So, um, I've shifted and adapted to it. And you know, that's kind of a part of it is that you just have to adapt because these platforms and the social media landscape is constantly changing. Great, thank you. Yes. Hi, Narissa Crayer from Entrada Therapeutics. My question relates to many of us as physicians um, are perfectionists. And so the feedback that we're giving on big C and little c communications, oftentimes we really want it to be perfect. But there's a balance, right, of striking the how much perfection do you need versus how much are you getting on the nerves of your communications person. 
she's not referring to me. <laughs> so I just couples wonder, counseling. <laughs> I just wonder your thoughts on that, striking that right balance as the CMO of what can you let ride, what don't you let ride, and, you know, Carla, your input on this, but our, our CMOs and past CMOs would be interesting as well. Well, Austin, let's start with you. Oh, um, I think it, it's very situation depending, kind of what I let ride or not, and kind of the scale, um, you know, depending on whatever it is, whether it's a press release or whether it's a social media post, you know, um, how that trade-off between authenticity and and accuracy um, really is. So I, I think it just really depends. Stephen? Yeah, I'd say it's, to some degree it depends upon what you're trying to achieve. So if this was a um, major phase two announcement that's intended to be a catalyst, uh, you may have more you know, intent on every last I being dotted and T being crossed because it's it's almost impossible to backtrack something that you've used and it can be particularly awful. Uh, thankfully, never had to do anything more than change like the the fifth decimal place on a p-value and even that was ended up being a retraction of a press release and resubmission. So I, I think it really just as Austin said, it really depends a lot on um, on what you're trying to accomplish. Whether it's you know if you're starting an IND, you don't need to include that level of detail and it just sort of is letting people know what's going on. Um, but other other times it's absolutely critical to get it right. And and personally, I would get on the nerves of my communication person every time over that. So I think, as a communications person on the stage, um, I, I think accuracy is critical. And it's important, so one of the questions I ask when you're wondering that situation is, who is the audience and who am I trying to talk to? So if it's Wall Street, if it's uh, a patient group, there might be some nuances. And one of the things that used to really, really bug me, and, and this was in my big pharma days, is I would read news releases and not and know that the average bear out there was not able to understand them because it was written in like legalese or it was written based on Wall Street or um, you know maybe a, a label indication or something. And, and so just like as a CMO, you we're increasingly trying to write our, our, um, our label information so that it's accessible. I like the idea of moving more of our communications, particularly when you're in the street industry that we're in, like in rare disease, for example, Patients are reading our news releases. They're reading everything we do. And so we have to talk at a level, and, and by this I'm not um, discounting the level of knowledge within the patient advocacy group because they probably collectively know more than we do. Um, but writing your press releases so that they're understandable to a wide range of audiences is really important. However, the trade-off is you don't want to mislead people because you're building trust and you're building leadership credibility. So you have to walk that fine line between making your, your writing accessible and making sure that it's accurate with the understanding that science evolves. So something that might be accurate today um, after we run another experiment or get some new data back may change. And so we have to do that with understanding as well. And that's why you don't run off and just write something or approve something in a vacuum. That's why the dialogue amongst groups is really, really important because all of these documents are here for a while. I would just tangentially reference in terms of employer branding and making that a very powerful tool in recruiting. Uh, I think of Bluebird eight or 10 years ago and you know, 
they put out so much communication about being a bird, and I don't even really remember the details, but everyone remembers that that was in your newsfeed every single day, and it became a memorable company. In particular, in oncology right now, there's 150 oncology MD openings below VP level right now. How are you going to make that distinction if you're a four-year oncologist at Bristol-Myers Squibb, which one to look at? So the more you can be different, the more you can be memorable, the more you can repeat that message and have a, have a group of people at your organization sort of advocate that message, you're going to win that war for talent because otherwise you're in a sea of companies that are just one indication different and it's just not that important to candidates. I love that. And one of the things we like to say is every communication should feel like there was actually an individual behind it who wrote it. Not a committee, not a legal review board, but an actual person who you might want to have coffee with. And I think that helps a lot as well. So any other questions? We have one minute and 40 seconds between us and ice cream. So maybe um, Austin, uh, final bit of advice. I would say one of the things that I've learned over the years through social media, since kind of that's the, my thing, <laughs> is um, the the art of storytelling. I think at the end of the day, just keep in mind, you know, what these social media platforms specifically, um, what they're all here to do, their businesses themselves. They want your eyeballs on their app and everything. That, how to generate reach on those apps is really. Um, you know, how do you maintain someone's attention for the longest amount of time on whatever content that you're creating? And that's really taught me a lot about how to approach whatever piece of content it is that I'm crafting. Thank you. Steve? Yeah, we didn't touch on internal uh, communication much, um, but as the CEO of a startup with a pretty much a broad range of people that are consultants, contractors, and so forth, I found that internal communications like Slack, which allow you to communicate internally, or other channels, um, almost as if these were people following your LinkedIn feed has been very uh, effective at keeping people on board and also essentially a, the beginnings of a corporate memory. So thinking about ways to communicate internally and get the people who otherwise wouldn't necessarily on board be on board with what we need to communicate to the rest of the world, that's essential because these are the people who will actually be the ones to recruit the full-time folks as you need them. So uh, just to think a little bit about internal communications as well, it's almost identical to what Austin was saying. Excellent, thank you. And Daniel? I just think about um, know thyself. If you're a Me Too fourth generation drug um, and you want to go after someone that, you know, is trying to be in a first line treatment and gene therapy and something really revolutionary, that's not going to click. And just think about the audience that you're trying to recruit and speak to that audience. Maybe that audience is a little bit more risk averse. So you should be presenting your capital position. You should be presenting your infrastructure and vice versa. If you're an innovative company, you gotta figure out a way to, to, to resonate with that particular candidate. And, and again, the more bespoke you can be on all these things, the better. And my last comment is just really be authentic and build credibility. This is the long game you're playing. You want to come out representing the, the authentic, credible self that you hope that will stick with you for the rest of your career. And stick with that, whether it's good times or bad. People are looking for the CMO, I think, to bring a unique set of skills to the table. And she or he should be doing so with the same credibility that you would expect in an interaction with a physician 
that you're meeting with, but you're expected to bring that skill set um, to the corporate environment as well. So thank you to my fabulous panel, and thank you, and enjoy your ice cream. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the CMO Summit 360, editorials, podcasts, or webcasts, please visit cmo360.org. Thanks for listening.